Hello and welcome to Renewing Hope Church in Oceanside, California, where our mission is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that this episode will both challenge and encourage you to love more. And now, here's today's episode. As we were worshiping, I had this vision of Jesus grabbing my hand and saying, come into my living room and let me show you what it's like. And as I walked in, there was this huge, plush, lazy boy. And he goes, just sit in it, put your feet up, and relax. That's what my living room's like. And it fits exactly the verse that Brandon just said, which is no anxiousness, no stress, just a peace which surpasses all understanding. Happy Palm Sunday. It's act- it was actually a Palm Monday, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, I love that, that I have the honor and the privilege of teaching the Bible, and I take this position very, very seriously. So when I say things like that, I want you to know that I don't, um, I have an accountability to God when I get there of what I did with this position. And so anything I'm going to say, um, I believe is what the Holy Spirit has given me to tell you. And, um, and I don't say things like that when I, if I ever go off traditional church, like history, it's for a reason because I feel like God is, is calling me to that. So I, I, I take it with, um, a tremendous sense of responsibility and I encourage you, like the Bereans, to test everything I say with Scripture and do your own research. Uh, and ask the Lord. And my favorite thing about studying the Bible is the greatest teacher is not the dean at Fuller Seminary. The greatest teacher is the Holy Spirit. So when you get to parts of the Bible and you don't understand it, ask him for help. Um, we are going to talk about the greatest crescendo of all time tonight which a crescendo in an orchestra is like this building music. It just builds and builds and builds, and it hits this like peak at the end. And I'm going to try and do this in 30 minutes. So I'm going to try and cover a 4,000-year crescendo in 30 minutes. So if I go a little over, be patient with me. Um, but I also want to challenge us as a church to really pursue the deeper things of the Bible because there's so much richness in the Bible, and it goes so deep and layered that if we don't constantly intake the Bible and ask questions, we'll miss so many like great little like trinkets of just nuggets of beauty and glory that God has put in the scripture. So I'm going to pray for us. God, just help us to see your light, to see your hope, and to see your love, Father. Um, open the, the, the Bible up to us today and, and help us to see it in a new light. Amen. All right, let's see how I do on this timing thing. Um, with any story, you got to start at the beginning. So I just want to remind us, I've gone over this before, but um, Genesis 3.14. So after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here we have the first prophecy in the Bible because um, 
the man has the seed and plants it in the woman, and nine months later, a baby comes out. And so the woman's seed is a hint at the virgin birth of Christ. And so as soon as sin comes into the world, God's like, I got a solution. It's coming. So that starts this like 4,000-year anticipation of what's going to save us from all this sin. And then in Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I love this because in our sin, we're shameful and we're ashamed and we don't want to come to God. And he's like, let me cover you. Let me cleanse you. Let me clothe you. And it's it's not obvious when you read this, but God is instituting animal sacrifice for sin right here. So where did he get skins? He had to kill some animals that he just made and take their skins. So this is why when you get to Cain and Abel, Abel's offering of a lamb was accepted and Cain's offering of fruit was not. It, when you read it, you think, oh, it's because Cain, you know, he, he, that he was into tilling the ground and, you know, he... he you think it's because of what they did for a job. No, it's because God early on instituted animal sacrifice as the only way to cover sin in the Old Testament. And you'll see this, that even in Noah, it talks about clean and unclean animals. And you don't get clean and unclean until you get to Moses. So what's Noah talking about clean and unclean animals? And so what you're seeing is that God had given this, um, the animal sacrificial system early on with Adam, and it was passed down verbally through the generations, but eventually the generations had lost this knowledge, and so God had to write it down with Moses. Um, I was praying about what to do for Palm Sunday, and I have a Coptic um, Egyptian coworker whose name is John, and he's, his family moved here when he was young, um, he might have been born here, but I think his brother might have been young. And he's raised by Coptic Christians. And you know what that is? It's like there's a very small minority of Christians in Egypt. Almost everyone's Muslim, but there's a, a small group of them that held on to traditional Christianity even when Islam took over. And his family is one of those families. And we were talking about Palm Sunday, and I was explaining some things. He goes, I've never heard any of that stuff. He goes, could you make like a timeline so I could see it visually. I'm a visual learner. So I came up with this timeline. Now, you're probably not going to be able to read it because the, the boxes are so small. Um, but Blue, if you can click on that. And thank you. So we're going to start in the red box, which is 4000 BC. And it says that Adam and Eve are created and sin and God institutes animal sacrifice. Then in the blue box, we jump up to 2350 BC. God destroys the earth with a flood. God saves Noah and his family and all the animals in the ark. Now these aren't precise year. These are like nudge up a little, nudge down a little. This, but you get a general idea because so, some of them are a couple years earlier before. But just to make it, I just round it up and down in certain spots. So brown is 2200 BC. This is the building of the Tower of Babel. God separates people all over the earth and gives them different languages. The nations are born. And Nimrod begins his campaign rebelling against God and establishing walled cities. 
So they never had walled cities before Nimrod, and he was a mighty hunter, and he established Babylon and Nineveh, and he led this rebellion against God. Every pagan religion has its history going back to Nimrod. When you study it all, it's all him. So him and his wife, it's crazy. So we're about to have Easter next week, and the reason it's called Easter is because when Rome, which was pagan, mixed this new Christianity, they, they just mixed a lot of holidays. So they were already having holidays like the winter solstice, and that's why they made Christmas in December, even though Jesus was born in September. So the fertility goddess Ishtar, which goes back to Nimrod's wife, they worshiped with bunnies and eggs. And so when they mixed the two, that's why we've got bunnies and eggs, and it's called Easter, uh, even though technically it's Passover Resurrection Day, right? So they mixed the two. So Nimrod's this interesting guy where all the stuff goes back to him. So all ancient Egyptian and Assyrian, all these religions, they all go back to him. The weeping of Tammuz that you read about in the Bible is people weeping over him dying. Um, and there's a book I can recommend that's really good on looking into all that. So then we get to 2000 BC in the green box. Abraham is born. A hundred years later, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises that one of his descendants will be the Messiah of the world to save us from our sins. And what a glorious thing. So we, we've now gone 2,000 years from God promising a Messiah through a virgin birth, and now we know which family it's coming from. It's like, this is exciting, right? And if, who does he pick? He picks an old guy who can't have kids to test him, right? You're an old guy, and your wife's old, and you're past the point of having kids, and I'm going to give your family the Messiah of the world. God always picks the forgotten, the lowest, the people who, you know, they give up, right? They lose hope. God can't use me. I can't even have kids. No, actually, your seed is going to be the seed that I'm going to use to save the entire universe. So in the purple box is 1750 BC. Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, as a king of Egypt, so he's number two in power, he's like a second pharaoh, moves his family, the other 11 sons of Israel and their families, down to Egypt. The 12 brothers and their families are 70 people total. So Joseph gets sold into slavery, and we all know the story, and then when he moves his family to Egypt, because he's got all this food to take care of them, they come down and they're 70 people. Um, and then, over 400 years, 70 people turn into anywhere from 2 to 3 million, probably closer to 3 million. And as it says in the Bible, the new Pharaoh rises up and doesn't know these guys and doesn't respect them and puts them into slavery and they continue to be blessed by God and God doesn't give them any diseases or problems and all their children are born and uh, healthy. And so as other nations uh, have disease and problems with their children, God promised, I'm going to bless you guys. And so that's why 70 people in just 400 years turned into 3 million. And they get so big... And they're under slavery that God's like, I'm going to release you. So then we all know the story of Moses. So he picks another guy who thinks God's, uh, God can't use me. I, I was on my way to being a top dog in Egypt, and I was 40 years old, and then I, I lost my temper and killed somebody trying to defend Israel and the Hebrews and ran into the desert. Now I'm 80 years old, and I'm just tending sheep for 40 years in the desert. And God can't use me. I'm old. And God shows up in a burning bush and says, you're my chosen servant, and you're going to go release Israel. And that man had the craziest miracles in the Bible. 
And so we know the story. He goes back to Egypt and he says, let my people go. Um, the Prince of Egypt is one of my, my favorite movies and the soundtrack's so good. Um, but he goes through all this stuff and he's asking Pharaoh and it goes back and forth. And so God sends all these plagues to Egypt. And as they're going through all these plagues, he's dealing with their gods. And it's really interesting because the gods that they worshiped are the way that God would like send them. So they would worship the frog. And God's like, you like frogs? Here's a ton of them, you know. Um, and in the end, he goes, we're going to have the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Now, this is really, really interesting because what God tells Moses is, is God doesn't do anything just to do it. Paul says that everything in the Old Testament is written as a, as a hint of pointing to Jesus. So we should look at every detail in the Old Testament as in some way pointing to Jesus. And so notice what God tells Moses. So Exodus 12, 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. So their first month was always Tishri, which is when they have Rosh Hashanah, which is like usually in September. So God goes, no, Nisan, which is usually around April this time, this is going to be your first month. So to this day, the Jews have a religious new year and a civil new year. So their civil new year is on Rosh Hashanah and their uh, religious new year is on Nisan the first. Because God right here is saying this is the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep, or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 12, for I, God, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I, God, will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Uh, there is no angel of death. Uh, it's an angel of the Lord, which is a reference to Jesus. Both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. So this is this thing that they have to kill a lamb, and they have to take the blood and paint it on their door posts. And when God is coming to judge, he will see the blood and he'll say, nope, you don't have to be punished because you did what I said and I will pass over your house. And that's where you get Jewish Passover. Now, why would God instruct the Jews to take the lamb on the 10th day of Nisan if they're not allowed to kill it to the 14th? We're going to get to that. That's a key point. So back to the timeline so in the yellow box, it is 1350 B.C. And to summarize, Israel is now a family of three million people and are slaves to Egypt. And God sends Moses to free them and institute the Passover. The tabernacle and sacrificial system with the seven holy days begin. So God has always had sacrificial system, but he's establishing now a calendar. So... The Jewish menorah, which I'm holding, is his seven-holiday calendar. So every one of these represents a different holy day, which is where we get holiday. 
right? So it came from the holy days that you would honor God. So the first one is Passover, uh, which we just talked about. And then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you have First Fruits. And then you have the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost in the middle, which is when our church was born and the big church was born. And then you have Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And then you have the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. And then you have the last feast day, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're always paying attention to our Gentile calendar, which is uh, Gregorian. But we need to pay attention to God's calendar because that's Moses didn't come up with this stuff. God said, set these days at this time. So we should be paying attention to God's calendar. Um, the next box on the timeline is, is 1300 to 1050 B.C., Israel inherits the promised land. They have no king and are ruled by God and the judges. So they have hundreds of years where they have no king, and you, that's the book of Judges. So they start doing bad. God sends people to judge them, and then a guy will stand up like Gideon, my favorite, who's a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, and will defend them. Gideon actually fights the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. Um, and so God uses all these judges to free them from their oppression. And, and, and it's this really interesting time where God says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds like today, right? Very similar. So next slide. So then we get to the green, uh, which is 1000 BC. God promises King David from the tribe of Judah that his descendant will be the Messiah and savior of the world. And his son, Solomon, builds the first temple. Now, this is interesting because we know it's going to be Abraham, but, and then we know God kind of hinted that it would be the tribe of Judah, but we, now we know the specific man that God is like, it's going to be you. And what do they call Jesus? Son of David, right? Heal me. And then, obviously, the establishing of the temple, and if you guys don't know this, when they had, the, they had a huge one of these that they had to light all these, these candles, the menorah, and they had uh, this table of showbread, and they had incense, and then they had this thing called the Holy of Holies, where if you guys have ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had this Ark of the Covenant, which was basically like a chest that you carry with poles that the Ten Commandments were inside. And you were only allowed to go into that room with the, with the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. And they would be in a tent, so the tent would move around. And so that's what, it, when you read about Moses, there would be a cloud by day and fire by night. And when the cloud would move and go up, they'd be like, oh, God's moving, and we'd follow the cloud. And then they get to a new town, and then they build this tent, and then they have all the stuff inside it. And all the different Levite tribes had to carry different stuff, and they were always moving with this tent. So when you read through Samuel and these books in the Bible, you'll see that the ark and the tabernacle will be in different towns in different places, but then Solomon, because David wanted to build him a house, his son Solomon builds it, but when David asked to build God a house, God goes, because you love me, I'm going to return the favor, and I'm going to give you and your descendant a king who will rule forever. Just incredible that God is picking King David as this guy. And then, this is when God really starts to speak through the prophets, so we start getting a lot more information so the next box is uh, yellow, which is 700 B.C. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will suffer for the sins of the world. And I just want to read this whole section and just take it in because it's just such a heavy part of Scripture. 
So Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Just so you know, arm of the Lord is always when God physically reveals himself. So it's like, think of my, my arm is out, right? So you can see it. So when God's talking about the arm of the Lord, he's talking about something you can see. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So Jesus was not super handsome. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Hallelujah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This section of scripture used to be read in Jewish synagogues for centuries, and they stopped eventually because it so clearly points to Jesus, and they don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Um, and did you notice what animal he was described as? He's described as a lamb. So Isaiah is giving us some hints. Back to the timeline. So the red box is 600 BC. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquers Judah and Israel and takes the Jews captive to Babylon, including Daniel. And then a few years later, to, to finish the job, they come back and destroy Solomon's temple. And all the holy items in this temple that I talked about are taken to Babylon. So the story of Belteshazzar, when we hear like the handwritings on the wall, that comes from he was having a party. And rather than using his own cups, he goes, go get God's cups. Let's use God, God's holy cups to pour wine in and get hammered. And that's God's like, you're done. And then he writes on the wall. And that very night, Cyrus came in and overthrew him. Um, which I'll get to. And that's a really cool story. I'll tell you that in a second. So the next box, moving down the timeline, is blue, which is 550 BC. The prophet Daniel in Babylon is given a prophecy that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem till Messiah arrives will be 483 Biblical years, which equals their 360-day years is a biblical year, and it equals 173,880 days. And Brandon covered this in his Daniel 9 study. So if you want a deeper dive into that, you can listen to that podcast. And then Israel is released from Babylon to go back. And that's a really cool story. So how that happened is that night that Belteshazzar like, was parting with God's stuff and God's like, you're done, and writes it on the wall. 
What he didn't know is that Cyrus was coming through this gate that you couldn't get under because of the water, but he diverted the river. So that him and his army got under the gate and there was a door that was supposed to be locked, but because they were partying, they left it open. And he comes in and conquers Babylon without a battle. So that same day that they're partying, Cyrus overthrew Babylon and conquered it. Now what's crazy about, I have to read this, I'm sorry. This is so cool. So this is, this is in Isaiah 45. Um, it's just, this is, a, so 100 years before this happened, Isaiah prophesied about this. And um, 40 years before Cyrus was even born. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So he goes on to basically tell him, I, I empowered you to do this. Now, once Cyrus takes over and he's ruling all of the known world at that time, Daniel shows him this prophecy and he's so blown away by it. He's like, I'm God's instrument and now the Jews can go back to their land and rebuild their temple. So that's how they get the, the authorization. Um, and so then all these Jews, and it's not a lot of them, it's just a remnant, but Daniel, um, Daniel obviously tells Cyrus about this, but he dies in Babylon, but then King David's uh, heir and a bunch of guys and the heirs of the priests and a, and a small remnant, they all return. And one of those guys is the prophet Zechariah. So the next box in purple is 520 B.C., and the prophet Zechariah, back in Israel with those building the second temple, because the first one was destroyed by Babylon, prophesies the Messiah will come to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. So Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when you see pictures of Jesus, and I, the one I use is accurate, he's always riding a donkey's colt who had never been ridden before. So there should be the mom donkey and then the colt who had never been ridden before, and that's who he told him to go get. And that's exactly what Zechariah says. So the next box is uh, 444. This is a big one. Artaxerxes gives the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So they were allowed to rebuild the temple, but they hadn't been given the authority to rebuild Jerusalem yet. So Artaxerxes does that, starting the 173,880-day countdown. It's like, this is a big deal. The countdown started. During this time, Malachi gives the last prophetic words of the Old Testament. Same time. So guess what happens once the timer gets started? Through the prophets, God goes silent. Now, why did he go silent? Because he started the timer. Tick, 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 every day, pay attention. This is going to end. I'm not speaking through anybody for 400 years because you should be paying attention to the timer. 
God still moved during that time. We have the miracle of Hanukkah during that time. God still used people, but prophetically, he went silent. I think it's really good to take moments of silence. Um, I think spirituality and healthy spirituality is you got to slow down. We're always so busy and so in a hurry. Um, And God took this moment to kind of set the crescendo of like, because in music you build dynamics. If it's always loud, you don't, it doesn't impact. So if you're building and building and then it kind of comes down, you're like, oh, what's going to happen? And then boom, right? It, It makes a bigger impact when you bring it down. So taking this 400 year of silence period, it's like, what's God doing? He's not speaking through anybody. What's the next thing going to be? So take moments of silence in your daily life. Like, get silent before God. Me and Anne were talking about this before the service, how the Lord called me to a period of silence where I wasn't allowed to talk to God for almost half a year. And it forced me to get on my knees and just learn the rhythm of silence before God so he could speak to me. All right, next, next slide. Yellow. We've got September of 2 B.C., Jesus the Messiah is born to Mary, the descendant of King David in Bethlehem, fulfilling the promise to David and also the prophecy of Micah 5.2. And the fact that he was born to Mary alone, obviously as the virgin birth, fulfills the Genesis promise that the seed of the woman, right? So this is a big deal. Then blue is October of 29 A.D. Jesus begins his ministry at the age of 30, just like the Bible says. The countdown only has three and a half years left if if people have been paying attention. So the countdown is literally like at three and a half years, and then Jesus shows up, and what does he start doing? He starts healing everybody and fixing everything and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And obviously John the Baptist was right before him. So purple uh, is Monday, March the 28th of 33 AD. The 483-year prophecy ends on Nisan 10, the day the Passover lamb is inspected, and the day Jesus made his triumphant entry on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling multiple prophecies. So why did God tell them to keep the, the lamb for four days in Exodus? because it was pointing to Jesus, because Jesus would appear on the 10th of Nisan and be in Jerusalem for four days before he was killed as a sacrificial lamb. So Palm Sunday was actually a Monday, and how I, I can prove that to you is in the Gospel of John. So John 12.1 says, Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, Passover, just so you guys know, can refer to two different days. So it's referred to as the 14th of Nisan when they would kill the Passover lamb. But post-Babylon, the Jews mixed those two holidays together. And rather than killing the lamb on the twilight right as before it's turning 14, they kill it the next day in the afternoon on the 14th of um, 
Nissan, and then they have their Seder dinner on the 15th, which is the beginning of unleavened bread. That's why this seems to be a contradiction when they're talking about having the Passover dinner, but then they're like, we got to get Jesus's body off the cross because it's the Passover. Because the Pharisees still honored the traditional date of having the Seder dinner as the 13th turned into the 14th, but the Sadducees were now observing it a day after. And to this day, the Jews will still observe um, the Seder dinner on the 15th at night, right, once it goes sundown. So how do we know which Passover John is referring to? Was it the 14th? Was it six days before the 14th? Or is it six days before the 15th? And how you can tell is because Jesus, to avoid the Pharisees who were trying to kill him, went to Ephraim, which is 13 miles outside of Jerusalem. And as a religious Jew, you're not allowed to travel more than three quarters of a mile on the Sabbath. And Jesus wrote the law. Remember, Jesus gave the law to Moses. So he would not violate his own law. So if it was six days before the Friday, it would have meant that he was traveling on a Sabbath day, which he wouldn't have done. So when John is referring to the Passover, he's talking about the Sadducee Passover on the 15th. So if you go six days before the Passover on the Saturday, because it was a high Sabbath, because Passover is a Sabbath and it landed on a Sabbath day, a Saturday, just like this week. So this is one of the few weeks, if you look at a Jewish calendar, where the calendar actually lines up how it happened historically. So tomorrow is the 10th of Nisan, just like it was what we're reading about. And Jesus was killed on the 14th of Passover, which was a Friday. And then they buried him for unleavened bread, which starts on the 15th, which is Saturday. And then the 16th is when he rose from the dead. So the calendar is the exact um, same as it was on the Jewish calendar to our calendar. We're a couple weeks off. Like he, he was killed on April the 1st. Um, and we're obviously in the middle of April now. But as far as the days landing on the right days of the Jewish and, the, and our calendar, it all works. So notice... So we, so we established that. So Jesus goes from six days before the Saturday. So he is there. On a Sunday, he traveled. So six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany because he wouldn't have traveled on the Sabbath. And then look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So this is on Monday. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So John is also quoting Zechariah. Now, what they're quoting is Psalm 118, when they're singing, Hosanna, blessed be the king. This is a messianic Verse. This is where this is a couple verses before that is where it says the cornerstone has been uh, the stone that's been rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone. So this is a mess. They read this at a time believing this talks about the, the Messiah. So the fact that this entire Jewish crowd, which is going nuts because Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. And and so everyone's believing in him and they're all crying Hosanna. The Pharisees are like. You're this, they're, they're proclaiming him as the Messiah, right? And so, 
And 39 of Luke 19, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Right? They're not allowed to say that. And what does Jesus say? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because this day has been a 4,000-year buildup. This day, Palm Sunday, technically Palm Monday, right? This is the day that the Messiah would be revealed to the world. And you notice there's all these times in the Bible where they try and make Jesus king, and he sneaks off, doesn't allow it to him. And they're always like, we got to make him king. And he's like, he pulls some move where he just sneaks off, and it's probably the Holy Spirit not allowing people to, to grab him. But on this day, he tells them, go get a donkey, do this, do this, do this, because this is his day. So he says, and I tell you, um, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 41, and when he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, so he's talking about Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this Day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's heavy. So if you, historically, they have a temple, they're worshiping, the Jews have their religious system, and 37 years after Jesus died, Titus and the Romans went in with four legions and leveled that place, killing so many Jews, destroying the temple. Why did God allow that? Because they did not recognize the day that he had appointed for 4,000 years for the Messiah to be revealed which means that if we read scripture, God holds us accountable to pay attention. So there's also another timer coming uh, that we've talked about at the abomination of desolation that is a countdown to the Messiah's second coming. So we need to be paying attention when we see that countdown timer start. And I'll let you know if it does, that we gotta pay attention because there's a ticker on that one that points to the second coming of Jesus. So verse 45, as he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, um, and the reason he did that is because when they came with their sacrifice, they would get overcharged. So rather, if a, if a let's say a, a lamb cost $1,000, they're like, your lamb's not good, you got to buy ours, and we'll sell it to you for $1,500. So they're making money off people trying to like get right with God. So that's why Jesus gets angry, because he's like, you're messing up my religious system that I've established to make money. It's not about making money, it's about pleasing God. So, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Do you know that a third of the Gospels are those words? So a third of the Gospels are the last couple days, this Holy Week that we're in right now, that we're starting. 
So all these things that Jesus taught for these last few days, they take up a third of the gospel. So a majority of what is in our Bible is from this week. That's special. So we know a lot of the words that they were hanging on. We can read it today. Hallelujah. Behold your king, right? Jesus comes in. I am the Messiah of the world. Now, we, luckily as a church, we recognize that, right? But the world, he's just another guy. So that's the, the thing, just like the Pharisees. And I, and I love this picture because it's a Pharisee. I can't, it's hard to see, but there's a Pharisee in the top right corner. And they're like, what are you doing? You're praising him. You know, it's like, that can't be God. It's just a man. The concept of God becoming a man was foreign to them, even though it's clearly in the scripture that it was in Genesis and it was in Isaiah and it was all these prophecies. Jesus filled so many prophecies when he came in. So I just remind you that Jesus is God, that he's literally the fulfillment of a 4,000 year buildup as he is the savior of the world. We will never have anybody else to turn to to save us from our sins because no one else is God and no one else died on a cross for our sins. Buddha, Muhammad, all these people, no one, even if they did, they were sinful men just like us. And if a man was to die for another man, that only counts for one. So if Jesus was an angel, like some of the cults say, Right? And the Bible says in the Old Testament that he, he's called an angel, which means messenger. But they say he was a created being. He wasn't God presenting himself as an angel. So just like God presented himself as a man. So if Jesus is just a created being, he's an angel. The Bible says that men are just a little bit lower in value than angels. So, so what? Like Jesus' death on the cross gets you like, you know, one and a quarter man's sins forgiven, like we're all screwed, right? <laughs> like we, we're all in trouble. Because if, if Jesus is not God, this is the whole thing of like Jesus being God. If Jesus is not God, then we are lost in our sins because only the Lamb of God who was presented on the 10th of Nisan and was killed on the exact moment they were killing the Passover lamb. So in this temple, which is in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, they had all the lambs that they would kill for Passover, but the main lamb that they would kill, they would kill at 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Nisan the 14th, the exact moment Jesus died on the cross. The correlation is crazy. It's so obvious that Jesus is our Passover lamb. What a story, right? What a story. What a buildup that that he would come and do this, that God would become a man. So let me just pray for us, and then we'll, we'll finish with worship. And God, I just praise you and worship you for sending Jesus to die for us. He was so humble, God, that the world missed it because they were expecting a, a, sh a show in the sense of a, a conquering military leader. They, they couldn't see that God had become a man to be humble and meek, to be silent and to be killed as the Passover lamb. But in his meekness and his humility, he did the most powerful and bold, courageous act that will ever be in this world. He took on the sins of the world because he loved us. That will forever be the greatest act of kindness of love, of mercy, and of power 
that we will ever see. And we will be talking about it and reading about it for eternity. Because when all sin has finally been removed and you establish your new heaven and your new earth, we will read this story and say, remember when there used to be sin? Remember when there used to be pain? Remember when we used to be anxious and worried? But Jesus fixed it all. It will be a story that we will tell. Father, thank you that you have included all of us in your story, that we get to work for you, we get to be part of your family, that you, just like David, you wrote him into your story, you have written every single one of us into your story. We have a part. And the angels will be mesmerized at how God used sinful men and women to bring the kingdom of righteousness to this earth. So we praise you, Holy Father. We thank you for this week. Let us slow down during this Holy Week and really take to heart what you did for us. Tomorrow on the 10th of Nisan, let us inspect the Lamb. Let us look at you, Jesus, and and think about why you did that. Let it speak to our hearts of how much you love us. Let us think about how you were, that you were humble and meek and kind and compassionate and loving. Let us just take in and look at who you are tomorrow and then let us take in the magnitude of the men and women that you created calling out for your death and you submitting your life to them because of love. And then next Sunday, Father, we will celebrate your glorious resurrection of your son in power and majesty as he rose from the dead and gave every single one of us hope. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Come, Lord Jesus, meet us tonight. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Renewing Hope Church. May God's love for you renew your hope today, and may His face shine upon you and give you peace. If you need prayer or would like to reach out to us, you can do so at our website, renewinghope.church. Until next time.